Today's guest is Jake Muse. Jake, I met on Big Island and Molokai way back in 2018 before the world took a shit on itself. And uh, that was through a series of synchronicities. Uh, when I had first got to On It in 2017, I was deep diving podcasts at the time, obviously hosting the Total Human Optimization Hour, which is what this podcast was called back then. It might have been On It podcast. I don't know. We gave it a few different names before it finally became the Cal Kingsbury podcast. But that said, uh, I wanted to go through, I asked Aubrey, I said, who, was, who, who do we have on the, on the sponsored list out of all our athletes? And I saw John Dudley was on the list. I was like, fuck yeah, man. I've been listening to him on Rogan's. I definitely want to get into hunting. And I uh, got to meet John, had him on the podcast, and he made me my first bow, my RX-1, which I still use to this day and fucking love. And um, that, that totally drew me in to bow hunting and um, was chatting with Kyle Tierman and Ben Greenfield and a few other buddies. And they put together an amazing hunt, which is where I got to meet today's guest, Jake Muse along with Justin Lee and a ton of other amazing people that I, I definitely want to get on this podcast. Uh, Greenfield was there, Dr. Peter Atia, uh, Dr. Chris Ryan. I mean, it was a loaded, really fun group of people to be with. It's probably the most fun I've ever had camping in terms of conversations, you know, and, and uh, just wanting to pick everyone's brain. You know, it was like the hunting aspect was as, as awesome as it gets. And the in-between hunting aspect was as awesome as it gets. So, I really had a blast, but I love Jake's background and story, and I wanted to get that out. I wanted to talk more. You know, Jake runs an amazing company called Maui Nui, which we'll dive into here, and uh, and he was there. You know, he was in front line and center um, during everything that happened in Maui, and I wanted to hear about it from from a local. You know, obviously, if you're into the rabbit holes that I'm into, there's a boatload of shit you can read on conspiracy and the why and all that other stuff. But, you know, I think you can get lost in the weeds. doesn't mean that I don't want to find that out or that we shouldn't know the truth. I certainly believe in, in not sticking my head in the sand. But at the same time, one person's truth, I think, is, is just as important, if not more important. And hearing what life was like during that from Jake and what they did is really powerful. It's a really powerful piece to this podcast that, that, that made me feel quite a bit better about the situation there. And, and, and that's, you know, in the face of everything that happened, um, a little silver lining. But Jake grew up in, in Canada, and you can still hear a little Canadian along with the, uh, <laughs> along with the Hawaiian accent, which is great. Um, and uh, yeah, we get into his background like in any, in any podcast here. I want to know what made them who they are. And uh, it's really cool, really cool, fascinating story uh, and what made Jake Muse who he is today and really what he's doing today. And Everything that he's, he's taken a dive into is really awesome because, you know, if, when I look back on everything that I'm doing now, that hunting trip was a big part of it. It was a big reconnection from me to the animals, to wanting to harvest my own meat, and, um, and then getting into farming. You know, like that, that made it one step closer, having had that connection to animals and beautiful, the most pristine land. You know, like I want to create a space in Lockhart that has grasses like they do in Hawaii, you know, that's just like mind-blowingly beautiful, incredibly green, incredibly nutrient-dense, and I think we're well on our way to it, but uh, thank you, Jake. Thanks for being on the podcast, and, and thank you for being part of the inspiration for me to do what I'm doing now in farming and obviously continuing the hunting game. As I told Jake, I've since uh, taken a slight step away from the bow. I still love it. Um, but I've been deep diving uh, long range, and I mean like thousand yard shots, things like that with the rifle, which I find to be just as awesome and interesting. 
you know, the thing about, and I break this down on the podcast with Jake and I, I promise I'll get into sponsors and then shut the hell up and let it roll. But I, there's something that's unmistakably beautiful and challenging with the bow because of the proximity. You have to get close to the animal. Like you can't take a hundred yard, maybe you could take a hundred yard shot. Uh, Cam Haynes, you know, that kind of, <laughs> Dudley for sure. I got to be to shoot effectively between 40 and 50. And if I'm being really honest, anything inside of 40, for sure. But the closer you are, the more, the, the easier it is for them to hear you, right? Especially when we're talking about Axis deer in Hawaii. Um, I had a buddy on this hunt that dot, they got four does at 80 plus yards. He's actually um, Peter Atia's uh, archery coach, buddy down in San Diego. Mind blowing. I didn't get a single, but, uh, but it was a big learning experience. And so, you know, the proximity from the bow is really special because you don't have that with the rifle. At the same time, I was successful on a cow elk hunt earlier this year. And I think that was close to 400 yards. So not a monster shot, but where we were, we were at the top of the 9,000 feet up. There wasn't a single fucking tree on the entire mountain. There was no cover. The ground is snow. It's white. They're all bedded down. And there happened to be one rock that our guide knew if we go the certain direction, we won't, we won't tip them off from the wind, from the windage and we'll be able to come up behind this rock. And if we're lucky and don't spook them, we can take the shot from the rock. And that's exactly how it went down. There's not a chance in hell we could have got any closer. There's not a chance in hell we could in that, in that particular hunt that we could have used a bow. So I like the ability of the gun to, to kind of open up different opportunities for different hunts. And I also like the idea, you know, like we've been training with uh, my brother, Clay Martin, who was a Marine recon sniper, uh, author of two phenomenal apocalypse books that I think are, are incredible. Um, Prairie Fire and Concrete Jungle. They're both on Audible and they're hilarious, which you're going to read about the apocalypse that should make you laugh. Um, but he trained, he, he has his train with 22 rifles and hitting at 300 meters. If you can hit 300 meters with some wind with a 22, you can take anybody out with a rifle round. Any any animal, you know, you can you can pick your shot at a thousand yards. You can you can hit where you want at a mile. And um, while it doesn't require as deep or patient a spot and stock, uh, and then the proximity, of course, doesn't have to be the same to get the to get the right shot. You got to be dialed the fuck in to do that. So that's what I've been exploring lately. And that's my hunting background. Don't, ma- don't know if I've mentioned that on the podcast with Jake or not, but um, I love both. I love archery. I love the, the long range rifle game and, and Jake's doing great shit. Uh, so support this podcast, support it by sharing it with a friend. Uh, we fixed an iTunes issue that is fucking mind blowing for the longest time. Uh, anybody, anytime somebody would pull up my show, unless you were a subscriber, you'd get the new episodes to pop right up in your feed. Um, that's just all I want to ask. It's the end of the year. If you enjoy this podcast and you listen to it more than once in a while, click subscribe. You know, five-star ratings are awesome, but click subscribe. The main issue was it only showed old episodes. It would load like an old ass episode with Dr. Dan Engel, who's a homie of mine. And you wouldn't, you'd have to scroll way down like hundreds of episodes to get to the new episode. That's a pain in the ass, and, and that's not that wasn't helping out uh, listens. So share it with a friend, click subscribe for damn sure, and if you feel so happy about it, uh, leave us a five-star rating with one or two ways the show's helped you out in life. This is our final month of Organifi hooking people up. They've done it for a year and a half. Thank you, Organifi. You guys have been the best. Uh, and then lastly, but not leastly, support our sponsors. They make this show possible. Organifi has been one of the longest-running show sponsors. They're absolutely incredible. 
Um, I often tell you guys about their package deal. The Sunrise to Sunset kit covers you with the red, the green, and the gold. These are flagship juice offerings that they offer in powder form. They've got um, little pre-made packets, which I think are phenomenal for travel because I don't like having a ton of jugs and, and jars and shaker cups and shit like that. What's nice is I could peel one of these open and throw it into a water bath, Fiji or something like that at the airport. And now I have a really exceptional supplement that's actually a series of supplements. And that's what's great about all these is that they're combining adaptogens, uh, functional mushrooms, and they taste phenomenal. The red is incredible. It's going to open up blood flow. It's going to allow you to think more clearly. And it's also going to help with uh, endurance, which is super important, not just physical endurance, but mental endurance with increased blood flow and increased nitric oxide. With increased blood flow and increased nitric oxide, we can get more blood flow and oxygen to the brain, more nutrients to the mitochondria, and that allows it to have better mental output. Super important if you've got a lot of travel, a lot of work to do, big presentations, anything like that, or you're studying hard, the red is very good for that. It's a, it's a favorite for pre-workout. It's a favorite for pre-bedtime, pre-bedroom rather, and it is a favorite for pre-bedtime because if you increase nitric oxide at, at sleep, you increase growth hormone output, which is awesome. It's one of the holy grails of all, of all hormones. So the red's incredible. The green is incredible. It's actually my favorite go-to. If I'm a little too caffeinated, I'll have that. Also, my daughter Wolfie loves the green. She absolutely loves it. Anytime I'm making myself a drink, she's like, I want green, daddy. I'm like, all right. And you only get a half scoop though, you little turd. And, uh, and I'll mix her up a little one. And then the gold is a family favorite. We have that at night, <clears throat> mix it with high fat, either with raw milk, we just warm up and blend in, or we'll go ahead and, and uh, get some whole fat canned coconut cream, warm that up and whisk it in. And it's freaking phenomenal. The gold is good. High levels of turmeric and, and lemon balm extract, which help you feel relaxed and unwind after a stressful evening. Get them all. Get them all. Organifi.com slash KKP. Grab your Sunrise to Sunset kit to be covered with the red, the green, and the gold with 20% off using KKP at checkout. And of course, you guys will have all these links in the show notes, so don't worry about remembering any of this stuff. But um, as I stated, Organifi will be sending out one winner who does a five-star post or five-star review for us on iTunes or Spotify. We'll find that. Leave your Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook handle, and we can reach out to you and get you hooked up with a gift from Organifi. We're also brought to you today by one of my homies, Monsel at sacredhunting.com. Monsel just came back on the podcast. He's going to be on here very shortly. Uh, that episode will air very shortly. A lot of this is a perfect episode for it, too. A lot of people listen to an episode like this with Jake or, or my, my, I've done a few with Monsel. And they're like, I want to do that. How do I sign up for that? And, you know, Monsel's done, since I started working with him, he's done 60 of these where he guides these. And he actually is guiding guides. He's teaching people how to be guides and to guide in the same manner that he does. Um, So this is phenomenal. Go to sacredhunting.com and you can sign up. Learn how to hunt the right way. This includes the basics of how to track, stock, kill, and field dress wild game animals. And sacred hunting adds plant medicine ritual and Native American components like the sweat lodge that make this a real rite of passage. This is super important. And uh, as I mentioned before, you know, one of the guests, one of my favorite mentors that I've ever had on this podcast was Dr. Will Tegel, author of Walking with Bears. And I think seven other books was a PhD in psychology, a PhD in physics, and a true medicine man, uh, an indigenous elder who, who passed away um, not long ago. Monsell was an understudy of Dr. Will's for six whole years. And as I stayed on that podcast, he, he truly carries Will's medicine. Um, I've had one of the, one of the, you know, I've had a couple of my favorite experiences hunting, 
the very first one I did with Monsel was actually with the carnivore doc, Paul Saladino. And I wasn't having a great experience hunting. I mean, I love the carnivore doc. Um, but, you know, we were hunting out of blinds and doing some stuff that I wasn't super into. And so I asked Mon- I made friends with Monsel and I said, look, let's do something where we can get out in the open. And, and um, that's what we did. We followed it up. We actually hunted on, uh, right during the snowpocalypse in February of 2020. And that was one of the most important timelines in my life because uh, it was such, an, such a, an experience. And when you go through these things, here's the thing that most people don't talk about. It's really important who you hunt with like, because they're either going to drive you up the fucking wall or you're going to have somebody that you bond with and become a lifelong friend. And several people that I met on, I met, you know, my, Nate, Nate Smith, I met on that hunt, who now is a guide with Monsel. Uh, Mike Salemi and Eric Vaughn, I knew before, Eric Vaughn and I have become, you know, close to best friends. He, he works on the farm. He's a general uh, manager of our farm, Gardeners of Eden. Mike Salemi has been on this podcast, fucking amazing guy. And uh, Checky as well. And uh, Mike and I had an amazing time together. You know, we, we, those, are, those, are, those are just inscribed on the stone of our souls when we go through an experience like this. My listeners are going to save $250 off their trip by mentioning Kyle's name. That's it. Just mention my name, $250 off your entire trip. There's only six slots available on each hunt. So visit sacredhunting.com and fill out the two-minute application and set up an exploratory call. Super important. Why do you have to apply? Why do you have an exploratory call? Well, he wants to make sure that you guys are the right fit. You don't want to have five really awesome people and, and one fucking doofus that ruins the trip for the other five. So there's an exploratory call and an application. This is important. Aside from that, there are only six spots available. That makes it very intimate. That means when you go out, it'll be one or two people per guide. It means you guys are going to have the utmost care and everyone's going to have an opportunity uh, to be in action. And uh, I think, you know, like I said before, there, there are very few things that you can do that can shift you and have any touch point that's related to a rite of passage. None of us went through this as kids. And we can now. And it's super important for men. It's also important for women. And we've had a lot of women uh, asking about this. And Monsel started doing his, all, his first all-women's. My wife and Leah, uh, Eric's wife, are going to be doing this in February. That one is filled out. But this is just as important for women. People now more than ever need to have a reconnection to their food. They need to understand, this is what I do. This is how I take care of myself. This is how I feed my family. And um, it's a special thing. So check it out, sacredhunting.com. Mention my name when you're there and you'll get $250 off. Most importantly, do this for yourself, you know, and, and, and write me about it. Write me at Living with the Kingsburys on, on Instagram. Write me at Kingsboo on Twitter and tell me about your experience. I want to hear all about it. We're also brought to you today by curednutrition.com slash KKP. Use code KKP for 20% off everything in the store. Cured has a number of amazing products, but the one that I've really taken a deep dive in liking to is the Cured Nutrition Sleep Bundle. We all know that a full night of sleep is essential when we're working towards optimizing our overall health. Cured Sleep Bundle, which combines their best-selling Zen and most potent CBN, is the answer to ensuring that you get a full night of sleep every night. Zen is a blend of functional mushrooms, cannabinoids, and adaptogens, while CBN is a lesser-known cannabinoid found in the hemp plant. These supplements were designed to support the two most critical stages of your body's natural sleep cycle, REM sleep and non-REM deep sleep. Cured's raw CBN oil contains 30 milligrams of CBD and 5 milligrams of CBN, 
Together, the CBD and CBN create a synergistic whole body effect. When it starts to kick in, you'll notice every inch of your body soften into a deeper state of relaxation as if you're laying beneath the comfort of a weighted blanket. Once you're asleep, Zen is there to ensure that your body is successfully cycling out of non-REM deep sleep and into REM and back again. Some people can't fall asleep, others can't stay asleep, and then are those that fall asleep and stay asleep but still struggle to spend enough time in each sleep stage. No matter what is keeping you from true rest and restoration, this sleep bundle is your solution. Think of it as a one-two punch for a body and brain reset. And here's what's great. You've got three capsules in Zen. You've got one capsule in, uh, or what do they call those? Little liquid caps. You got one liquid cap with the CBN. They're small. You're not cramming a bunch of horse pills down. You're not like my wife and I in the morning. We take a fucking shot glass full of, full of supplements. Four pills, that's it. You got four capsules and you're off to the races. Right now, Cured is extending an exclusive offer to you, my listeners. You can grab Zen and CBN in the sleep bundle for an extra 20% off Cured's already discounted price by visiting www.curednutrition.com slash KKP and using the coupon code KKP at checkout. With this extra discount, you're getting 36% off the regular price. Yep, that's C-U-R-E-D nutrition.com slash KKP and coupon code KKP at checkout to save an extra 20%. We are also brought to you today by my homies at Buy Optimizers. They got some brand new shit to get a head start on your holiday stress. Visit stressguardian.com slash kingsboo and use promo code kingsboo in all caps, one zero for 10% off your first order. Feeling overwhelmed this holiday season? I get it. November and December's demands, end of year tasks, holiday preparations, gift shopping, and family get-togethers, friend get-togethers, friends giving, this and that can be a relentless source of stress. Well, Breathe easy, because Stress Guardian is here to help. It's the latest scientific breakthrough from Bioptimizers, the geniuses behind Magnesium Breakthrough and Masszymes and all the other great shit that they do. It's packed with a blend of 14 adaptogenic herbs that help you regulate your stress response naturally, granting you control over holiday stress. With daily use, Stress Guardian becomes your personal shield against seasonal tension, enhancing both your mental and physical well-being. Say goodbye to just surviving, this holiday season, thrive instead with Stress Guardian. To get a head start on your holiday stress, visit stressguardian.com slash kingsboo and use promo code K-I-N-G-S-B-U in all caps, one zero for 10% off your first order. Bioptimizers is so confident in their products that they offer a risk-free 365-day money-back guarantee. Discover the secret to peace on earth this holiday season, stressguardian.com slash kingsboo. And last but not least, I got to tell you guys, we're, it's the end of the year and at the end of January, so coming up in a month here, we're running back full temple reset. Uh, it's going to be at the farm in Lockhart. This is your opportunity. If you've been listening to the show for a couple episodes, you've been listening to the show for a long time and you've wanted to meet me or get coaching or have a deep dive in any of the, th- the practices that I know to be the very best, the most transformative, this is your opportunity to take a deep dive with me. Uh, I got, I'm joined by Eric Godsey. Like I said, five days straight, we're going to run each other through the gauntlet. Fasting mimicking diet that's personalized for your body. Uh, optional blood work through Ways to Well. We're going to deep dive all the practices, the best practices, the, from mobility daily to sauna and ice bath daily. And Godsey is going to deep dive internal family systems, Jungian symbology, dream work, all sorts of cool shit. And he's giving away his journaling course for free included in this. So there's so many add-ons and things that are included in this guy. January 24th to the 28th, it's an in-person summit where you'll get to hang with me and Godsey all day long. 
It is a smaller event. It's an immersive. So this thing is capped at 50 people. Most of these run around 30 to 35 people. So trust me when I say this, this is an intimate container where we really get to deep dive and learn a lot from each other. You can apply now at fitforservice.com slash, 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 all that jazz. Just look for it in the show notes. Uh, and Fit for Service is the host, of course, for Full Temple Reset, which is something that I've done for now three years. This will be our fourth and I'm incredibly excited to be able to do this with you all January 24th of the 28th. Click it in the show notes. It'll be at the very top uh, with the fitforservice.com link. You have seven days left. There's only one week left to sign up for this. So this is it. And we only run this once a year. So available only at the end of January, seven days left to sign up for it. Visit fitforservice.com and you click that in the show notes. You'll find the full Temple Reset page right there waiting for you. I hope to see you guys there. I can't wait to meet you. And uh, without further ado, Jake Muse, welcome to the podcast, brother. Oh, so excited to be here. It's been way too long, my friend. It has been way too long. And it's been, it, it's funny, it's been a long time coming for this. Like, I fucking wanted a podcast with you back back when we were in Hawaii, which was, I think, 2018. Yeah. It's been a, right? was it been that long? It was fuck, five fucking years ago. That's crazy to think like that. Yeah. But, um, I mean, obviously, a lot has happened. Uh, I was planning with T-Man to come back out. Cal Tierman, you know, buddy who coordinated the whole thing with us, uh, big wave surfer, writer, extraordinaire, and and um, he's writing a book right now that Chris Ryan's helping him with. So I'm super stoked for that. But team, I hit T Man up. You know, I was like, hey, me and Aubrey want to do a hunt with Ben Greenfield, and it's like you open other people coming. I was like, fuck yeah! And then next thing you know, we've got Peter Atia there, and and uh, Chris Ryan, Dr. Chris Ryan came, and just a ton of awesome people. Um, and uh, so, yeah, anyway, and I'm sure I'm leaving people out. I'm sorry for that. It was a long ass time ago, but um, yeah. meeting you and meeting the crew, you know, you guys were our guides on that trip. We got to meet Mark Healy, you know, one of the best spear fishermen in the world and, and uh, avid hunters. So there were so many great hunters that knew the land and had, had made that a real lifelong experience for me at that point, that was my first major hunt with, with a bow. I had, I had just met John Dudley, that March on my birthday, he made me a Hoyt and gave it to me as a birthday present. And I've been practicing with that RX-1 religiously before that hunt, but had never seen Axis deer. I'd only been hearing Rogan talk about it and all the different people. So it was the trip of a lifetime. It was fucking amazing. And yeah, I was looking to, to, to try to run that back. And then COVID happened. It was like the islands were the last place on earth anybody from out of town wanted to be, you know? So it was just like, man, and then, and then, and then life continues to happen now. So had our second yeah. kid, that kind of stuff. But um, it's so good to have you on the podcast. You know, th- as we talk, general arc of the show is I want to know what made you you. You know, talk about where are you from? What was life like growing up? What were your parents like? What got you into everything that you're into hunting-wise? And then we'll talk about the business you created and everything that's going on out in Maui because you've, you've, you've really done one of the most unique things and such a cool thing, you know, with, with Maui Nui that no one else had access, you know, before to access, let alone any type of really, you know, wild game. You couldn't do that commercially. You couldn't do it at scale. And you're doing something that's helping the environment as well as helping people like me and my family actually eat better and get really, you know, the very best quality meat on the planet. So I'd love for you to deep dive that. Let's take as long as you want to. I don't need a back and forth online. Um, it's a little easier to get into back and forth face to face, but with our little time, <laughs> difference here in the internet it's much easier if you just go on a fucking tangent go off brother yeah well i mean yeah excited to be here selfishly i'm probably going to try and sneak in some questions because we we got all kinds of catching up to do but 
yeah, I mean, stepping it all the way back to 2018, it was uh, so cool to see such like a group of such interesting people. A lot of them like picking up even Peter, I think Peter, that was Peter's first like real hunt too. Um, kind of picking up that bow for the first time and starting to really like take that extra step to connect with food, um, which just continues to extend in how you like operate in a place, think about places. Um, so yeah, that was a, that was a lot of fun. I guess if I, to try and follow your arc here before I go on any tangents, I guess if I step it all the way back, kind of under that same sentiment, life for me started in Northern Canada, uh, kind of within the Arctic Circle, so way up in Northern Alberta. And I think some of the foundations to what and who I am today are, I grew up eating like pheasant, moose meat, like fish, like we were seven hours away from the next town. We were in a town called Rainbow Lake. And my mom, I remember like going down in the summers, we'd spend our time in this place called Gall Lake. It was a lot warmer. It was in like Southern Alberta. And she would literally pack for the entire year. And we would haul this huge trailer and she would bring like all the mac and cheese and like all the extra stuff that she would need for like baking and whatever else she could. But she never brought any meat. And so my dad's like, and there was always this like little bit of tension as we were like going home, like, okay, you better get something. Like we don't have anything in the freezer. And I remember there just being this huge celebration when dad and everybody else would go out and they'd get two or three really big moose and then you'd cut them all up. And I remember like being as a kid, seeing them on the cranes and then like the freezer being full. Um, And I think that, foundation obviously that has carried through for how I think about food and ultimately what we've done with Maui Nui and then long story short there which probably ties into this too a lot like you as an athlete food as I developed into an athlete through my teenage years and then eventually like went to the University of Hawaii to play division one ball and ended up playing professional volleyball um food as you kind of got into like your latter years in college, you were like, wait a second. I feel a lot better when I eat good food. And I don't think we knew enough then. And even then you think 20, 22, 23, but what happened, which I got super lucky and why we went, like when we spent time on Molokai, like why we were there was my dorm assignment got screwed up. And they threw me in with all of the Hawaiian kids that weren't smart enough to get into college. So they were taking the summer course to like up their grades. And they were all in this like one dorm room. And they messed up my dorm assignment and tossed me in with like all of the locals. And I walked in the first day and Buta, he was like this 6'4", 260. And he's like, uh, Johnson Hall B. I'm like, yeah, 2A. And he's like, oh boy, you're in the wrong place. We're going to eat you. And I like, just coming from Canada, I've never, <laughs> like, I've never even seen people with bone structure like this. It's like the biggest humans I've ever seen in my life. And true to, like you hear that word used poorly a lot of times, but like the Aloha spirit, that thing's 100% true, man. That, that, that group of guys, especially my roommate, just was like, 
okay, if you're here, you're going to be one of our brothers. We're going to take care of you. And that was probably one of the biggest blessings I've ever gotten was I got to then become a part of like those families. And then eventually like that later that year, a family on Moloka'i, they call it Hanai, but like basically it's like a local adoption. They were like, oh no, we're taking care of you. Because at that point I was actually, the family was living on the East coast of Canada and it was too far to go back and forth for holidays and stuff. And I was a broke college kid. So I got to go to Moloka'i every month at least and learn. And I'd already been, grew up in a subsistence family and Moloka'i has 7,000 people and 70,000 deer. Like you were there, you, you know what the story is. Um, but got to like, was introduced to access deer from this place as they're extremely valuable. They're a resource. And through, through college, they were like, we would go, we'd fit as much as we could into those crappy little red freezer, like those coolers. And then you'd stuff, not only would you stuff your dorm room, remember those tiny ass dorm room freezers you had? Like not only would you stuff <laughs> your school, but then you'd go to like the people down the hall and you'd be like, Hey, if I can like stick 10 pounds in here, you can have a little bit of it. Anyway, like that food source became something like a loved interacted with from like a recreational subsistence standpoint. But as I got into my later years, um, in college and started to like really focus on performance. I was like, Oh, wait a second. Like I feel way better when I am eating deer meat versus whatever crap is in the cafeteria. Right. Um, so that was like, there's a lot of foundations there that at the time I probably didn't realize it, but thinking back now, like there are foundations in like kind of respect for that animal and nutrition and an understanding of like place and what it does for me. And, Again, biggest one of the best things that's ever happened in my life is that somebody screwing up my dorm assignment. Because typically they stuck you in these other dorms with the California kids and or somebody else from Europe that was coming into the team. And yeah, I just wouldn't have never been the same person. Ended up like meeting my wife on Molokai, got three Hawaiian babies running around. Like, yeah, best thing that ever happened to me for sure. That's that's so so incredible. And 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 yeah, you're right. There's it's something I noticed with Justin Lee, you know, like the Ohana. You know, like, you, come on, your, your family now. Like that, that, and that was just like a, a taste of what you experienced. But I remember being there and like the, the food, the cookouts, like everyone, everyone's there. And it's like, oh, we know him from such and such, you know, like you're getting introduced to everybody. Literally like you just married their daughter. You know? <laughs> yeah. It's, it's pretty, pretty remarkable. But um, it's funny, I played defensive line in college football. And I remember in junior college at MCC, I was the only white guy on the defensive line. We had like two black guys and the rest were Pacific Islanders and they were giants, you know, like a couple of went on to play in the NFL, um, three or four of them actually. But yeah, we'd ride, we'd ride the bus everywhere in, in, at, at MCC, like these 10 hour rides to snow Utah. And the guys would go and steal two five gallon Gatorade drums from the office and, and make kava the night before. Yeah. So we'd have 10 gallons of kava and, and I was the only white guy allowed to drink it cause I was on the defensive line. So we'd be in the yeah. back playing cards just smashing kava, laughing our asses off, and then pass out with our mouths wide open, wake up, you know, and like, all right, cool, it's game day the next day. Um, but yeah, some of my best memories were, were hanging with the crew in the back of the bus. That's so cool that, you know, you get you really do get taken under the wing, and that, that's awesome that, uh, that that was your experience. You can hear, you know, it, it's both ways. Like, I'm good buddies with John Hackleman, um, and, and John Hackleman growing up, you know, on the islands, 
he, he didn't have it that way for a while. He had a few guys, you know, he was, he was actually buddy buddies with the big fat singer, the, the, the guy who died, but sang, um, oh, Israel. Uh, with the yeah. ukulele. Yeah, yeah. 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 They were in high school together. Yeah. They're in wow. high school together. But, you know, and then that forged John Hackleman. He became one of the best fighters and best fight coaches on the fucking planet. First guy to bring, you know, white Kempo bacon into the UFC. So, so I guess it's all for a purpose, but that's awesome. That's awesome. It yeah, makes it sense is. too. I mean, talk about, talk about moose for a second. I don't want to take us too far off topic here, but we did a, did a fishing trip for one of my buddies, um, bachelor parties in the Kenai, Kenai Peninsula in Alaska. And we weren't way North, you know, like we were North for, you know, as far as Canada's concerned, but like not central, like central Canada up North is a whole different animal. The yeah. first time I saw a moose, because I remember people telling me, like, watch out for moose. There's there more humans die from moose up here than anything else. And I'm like, from what? And like, well, car accidents, getting charged. And we had, like, a lifted F-250. And the thing was taller. The shoulders were taller than the truck. And I was like, good God. <laughs> like, I never even – I had no idea they were that big. Like, no idea they were that big. Like, you see one on TV and you're like, yeah, it looks big, but so does an elk. And you know, there's different things like that. And you just see, you see a moose in real life and you're just like, this, this seems like unimaginably big. Yeah. I, I remember, it's funny you say that. I haven't thought like thought about moose in a long time. I just remembered. I, so they call them swamp donkeys. Like their nickname was like swamp donkeys in Canada. And it's because like they primarily live in swamps. But when you look at like their leg length, again, every animal is designed for a place, right? So when you look at their leg length, I just remember having a memory of like me walking through the swamps and seeing like a moose kind of doing it at the same time and the moose doing it like effortlessly, right? Like massive, like front and rear shoulders, like to kind of pull all of their legs out of the swamp and be able to like move through it without eat. And like, as a like useless human, just being like, Oh my God, like how the hell do I get through this place? And I think like, that's what it is, is those those northern areas where they have to like survive throughout the winter or well just survive through the winter and then basically like gorge themselves through the summer just to make it they they do i think they have to carry that level of mass to be able to move through those like peat moss bog type environments um which is so interesting because you can actually and i'm sure we'll talk about this later but like moose has a distinct taste because of like what they're eating like they're constantly eating this like wet mossy vegetation and you can kind of taste that it's not like a it's like a musty uh some people don't like it i love it like every every once in a while i'll bump into somebody that has moose and like and like i can taste it i was like oh like that's what that place smelled like i remember like that's what it smelled like um yeah really unique animal just massive creature not so great memory I remember a guy, it was a big truck. It must have been like a, I think about it now, like maybe it was like an F-250, but the old one, like the steel ones. And Moose hits the passenger side. Guy somehow lived. The passenger side gets crushed all the way through to like the tailgate. Essentially like, damn. Moose walks away. Like they're, <laughs> like they're just such an enormous animal. Um yeah, they are. I remember driving home, like long drives with my dad and him just being like wired looking for moose. Like he wasn't worried about anything else. He was just like, if we hit a moose, it's going to be really bad. Um, so yeah, really cool. An amazing like place to grow up in and remember versus like 
where I'm at today, right? Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. So that that explains, you know, why you stayed. Obviously, you had good reason to stay. <laughs> uh, meet the woman of your dreams, you know, all that good stuff. Um, and you were already kind of plugged in with the locals, getting to hunt places that most people don't. Talk a bit about the progression of of you as a hunter and the things that you're getting into when you finish school. Yeah. Um, where did it? St- you know what I think it was was. Again, starts from this place where you love this animal. It's an amazing resource. And I think it was maybe like third or fourth year in college, I was going back and go to our like regular hunting spot, come around the corner and I see it's all all about like a couple hundred yards and I see like 200 deer, which isn't like, that's not a big deal. Like it's not on for anything, but they're all bedded down and it's like 10 in the morning. I remember we got up late that morning. I'm like, man, they're like, they're bedded. What is going on? And keep getting closer and they're not moving. And I'm looking at my friend and he's like, or he's like my, basically my brother. And he's like, Oh, they were that entire herd was laying down, basically dying of malnutrition. And it had been a like pronounced drought that we didn't really recognize on Oahu. And this was on like one of the drier areas of the Island. And basically they had eaten all of the food and there was literally like nothing left to eat and they were, they were dying of malnutrition. And I remember thinking like, wait a second, like this is how this works. Like this is how deer are managed on an Island with no predators. And I thought everything was perfect. I was like, this can't be it. And they were so unhealthy that we actually couldn't like harvest one of them because they weren't going to be like good to eat. And I was just like, so we ended up like walking or going to the other end of the island and finding and shooting some deer that were like in a better place. But I was, I, I think I remember that as like a key moment of like, wait a second, this can't be how such an important food resource is managed. And it, it started the path of like a complete understanding of what axis deer as a quote unquote, like invasive species does in a place and what that means for ecosystems and food systems and community. So I I think it was like that startling event that went like, come on, there's got like, I don't think it's a classic entrepreneurial, like, aha, it was just like, holy, there's got to be a better way than this. This can't be what happens to this animal when mismanaged, right? Um, So that was kind of the very first, I think that's when I went from recreational subsistence hunter to trying to do a little bit of problem solving. And then remember writing a business plan in my capstone class in college that I became kind of obsessed after that, (laughs) Um, but found out New Zealand in the sixties and seventies basically created a deer industry from almost the same like happenstance, a whole bunch of red stag and stuff got introduced to New Zealand as an invasive species proliferated with no predators, great, like very limited seasonal stresses they started a deer industry by basically like shooting them out of helicopters, retrieving them and then like processing them. And then they shot so many of them as a food, re- like as a commercial commodity item that they started running out. So they domesticated them. So I was like, Oh, wait a second. These guys got it figured out. That's what we're going to do. We're going to, as a business plan, I was like, we're going to reduce exterior populations, maintain them as a food source. And we're going to farm them end up winning that business plan competition. And find out nine months later that I was completely wrong. (laughs) 
Axis deer are essentially, I don't even, wouldn't even call it domestication. Like you, they're unhabituate, like you can't, they're unable to habituate. So there's one guy that's been able to pull it off in Australia. Um, he can't have herd size bigger than seven. Even if they're third and fourth generation bottle fed, if they get into herds of more than like 15 or 16, they like revert straight back to wild. So the idea that we could like manage them, like went out the door from like a, a typical ag standpoint. So it then like shifted to like, okay, wait a second. If we can't do that, what else is there? And basically in college, I mean, everybody kind of fakes it till they make it, but Basically, in college, uh, I started – I was trying to get a bunch of information from India because that's the only place that at that point was doing any studies on Axis deer. That's where they're originally from. That's their homeland. And nobody would answer me. I'd be like, oh, I'm a college grad doing this, and nobody would answer me. And so I started like – I started the Axis Deer Institute overnight, went online, signed up for a quick state registration for 50 bucks, made myself executive director, made a logo – and then I started sending emails from, oh, the executive director. And then everybody started answering me and sending me all of their studies. So then I was, then I was able to start collecting huge amounts of data on population dynamics and fawn mortality and all these different things that, like, I was truly obsessed. Um, and played three years of professional volleyball throughout Europe and the Maldives and Indonesia and had just an amazing time, but was constantly obsessed and kind of collecting information. And yeah, very long story short, uh, three axis deer were illegally introduced to the big Island. The big Island, uh, had no axis deer at that point. And the big Island is the big Island for a reason. It's Hawaii Island. It, it essentially all the Hawaiian islands could fit in it. It's huge. Um, and believe it or not, nobody really knew anything about Axis deer, as crazy as that is. So we got the contract to find and remove those three to four deer. Um, Kyle, it took us seven months to find the first deer. We hunted every day about Sunday. Damn. Imagine Six days a week for seven months? You imagine doing – it took us three years to find them all. You imagine doing a seven-month hunt – it was like, it was crazy, but ultimately, again, long story short there is we had to develop, that's like, we have a massive integration of forward-looking infrared technology into like what we do every day now. And it started way back then. We were at like month five and we're like, it was a hundred square mile area. We're like, we're never going to find these things. Like we'd done all the classic like hunting, like transacted every mile, looked for sign, checked water, everything. We couldn't find it. And it wasn't until we brought in, we actually like got to borrow this piece of equipment from the military from a helicopter forward looking infrared. And then we we're like, Oh, like we could see like, we could see anything. We could find anything and ended up um, being able to use that technology to help find those animals, develop survey methodology. That is still the most accurate surveys you can do. I think anywhere at this point, um, but long story short, then took another two years to find and remove all of those animals, which ended up being like five total. So very few – oh, fun fact. Every seven days, a new invasive species is, in, is introduced to the Hawaiian Islands. Hold on. This is a, oh, this is a great place because I, I want to backtrack here. 
Okay, go for it. I know that, that a lot of people, I want to know a lot of people, I, I, I believe a lot of people have hunted or are interested in hunting that are listening to this podcast. It's, it's certainly if they've made it this long or there, there's a curiosity yeah. there. Break down how this problem started. Break down, you know, the king getting this as a gift, what it meant, where they went, and, and, and what actually transpires without having a natural predator there. Yeah, because so, I think so, this is super important. So it frames it frames the whole fucking thing, right? And I think this is yeah, super. Uh, why, why would they care? You got a few deer on Big Island. Why does that matter, right? Frame this thing great, for us. Great, great question. So, 1868, two bucks and five does are introduced by King Kamehameha V to the island of Molokai. Um, as in, like as early as 1894 there were already like articles coming out in the papers about like concerns of them, like interacting with watersheds. So Hawaii is the most isolated landmass on the planet. There's nothing more valuable than water. And our forests have been designed over years and years and years to basically capture fog. So in the, these high upland areas, they basically like capture fog nonstop and that produces all of our fresh water. And Hawaiians knew this, they knew this for, thousands and thousands and thousands of years. So Hawaiians early on in the 1894s were like, wait a second, like they're in our forests and this isn't good. And as early as 1898, they brought in sharpshooters from California. In 1898, they shot 7,000 deer on Molokai to start to like, they recognized this was like, we've been having this conversation for hundred plus years of like managing access deer and still no solution at this point. Um, 1909, the territorial government is already like talking about different rules by in the 1920s. So we're on deer only on Molokai at this point um, and starting to like grow exponentially. In the 1920s, they get introduced to Lanai, which maybe some people have heard like that's where Rogan goes hunting and like lots of people have heard of like the island of Lanai. So in 1920s, they go to Lanai, probably by like, Lanai is small, probably by like the 50s and 60s. Lanai has essentially like a maximum population and that population is only being regulated by essentially available feed, right? So like we talked about on Molokai, like that type of die off. And then in 1959 <laughs> and 1960, the state tries to introduce deer to the Big Island and to Maui essentially at the same time. And the Big Island gets like national parks from around the country. Everybody puts up this huge foster ranching community and essentially like they don't get introduced to the Big Island, but they get introduced to Maui. And that's in 1959, 1960. And now there are 60 to 70,000 deer on Maui but there's going to be, the population is still emerging. There's going to be 210 to 240,000 deer on Maui, essentially if we don't balance populations. And there's a huge, like, we can dig into like the no predators, perfect weather, no seasonal stresses, like a lot of like elk, mule deer, all of these different animals will like die from, they call it winter kill, but like winter's hard and a lot of animals don't make it through winter. So they don't have any of these exterior stresses, but the most important thing is axis deer are one of the few deer species in the world that can breed year round. So when an elk, mule deer, uh, Sitka, when they drop their antlers, 
what ends up happening is for, for those folks that don't know, access deer or all deer regrow their antlers every year. It's actually kind of crazy. It's one of the only species that can like regenerate a bone in a period of like three to four months. It's kind of nuts. It's why antler velvet is pretty coveted throughout, you know, Asian culture and a bunch of other things. Um, but long story short, when that antler falls off, testosterone drops, sperm with the vast majority of species are no longer viable. That's why there's a pronounced like rut period. And there's a very specified period where like you see all of these cakey, all of these fawn being born, right? Axis deer sperm is viable year round. And it creates, what it does is create like prolific growth rates, like viral level growth rates at about 33% a year. So cool story. Axis deer get introduced to Maui in 1959, 1960. In 1961, black-tailed deer get introduced to Kauai. You can't, you can't find a black deer, like black-tailed deer on Kauai. Like they're still extremely hard to find. And it's like the differentiating factor, there's no predators on Kauai's perfect feed, et cetera, et cetera. The differentiating factor is sperm is viable year-round. 89% of the 40,000 plus deer we've harvested on Maui, 89% of those females is either lactating or pregnant when we harvest them. Wow. Yeah. So long tangent to say King Kamehameha happened to, well, he introduced them to Molokai. The Baldwins then introduced them to Lonai, and then the state introduces them to Maui. But the deer that is here is one of the most prolific deer species in the world. And then on top of it, one of the most intelligent as well. So you're dealing with a, um, now luckily they're one of the best tasting. Um, so it makes it like. They're the best for sure. <laughs> yeah. It makes it easy to eat, but that's really where the problem lies. The problem lies in, in that very extremely unique species that is highly viral and healthy so yeah yeah one of the things too because we had the option there's a lot of axis deer in texas and it's not the same as hawaiian axis that's for damn sure you know you understand you you are what you eat ate kind of deal um and we, we've seen that even amongst our, our sheep thus far but it's the fact that they they'll eat all the way down to the root they'll eat the root they'll eat all the way to the ground right and what happens and we see this you know like peter atia called it the passion of the christ because he was walking through nothing but thorn bushes and that's you know these seeds are already in the soil they lie dormant if the grassland remains you don't see them grow but as soon as the grass is taken out and it and it won't return if the roots are eaten then these giant thorn bushes come in and that's what we had to hike through in, in effectively warm weather gear <laughs> so yeah. he looked like he got whipped with a thorn you know like a thorn whip you know, just cuts all over his legs. Um, he was successful, so he didn't give a shit. But yeah. yeah, I mean, that's that's really really what changes the landscape. So it's not just you know that you're up; it's an uphill battle fighting against a hyper intelligent animal that was designed to escape, you know, tigers in India, and and it has no real external you know forces working against it. Um, those are all you know talking about growth rate, which is is in and of itself hard to manage. But what it's actually what's actually happening to the land is also a really important factor as well. And you you guys know this inside and out from pig populations. You know it from golf courses and local reefs, like all sorts of shit. Um, and so it really, it really does become an environmental threat 
rapidly, you know, almost faster than anything else that you guys have had to deal with. Yeah, it, it is. It really is like, and it's just this sad, like two sides of the coin, like such an extraordinary resource, but it is literally an ecological disaster at like when they get to the point where the only thing managing their populations is they eat everything and they like, they don't have any food left. Right. And at that point you have huge. So you, we think of it as Malka to Makai. So mountain to ocean. So you have mountains that are collecting significantly less water. So both in stream beds, but in our aquifers. So like, significantly like having a significant impact on the health of the island as a whole you have deer in like these central locations that are denuding landscapes but more importantly those landscapes can't grow other food right so you have a food like a dysfunctional food system where doesn't matter if it's sweet potato or cattle or anything like you can't grow anything else and then all of that soil which takes epochs to make like especially on a hawaiian island that's volcanic like all of that soil runs off into the ocean when we get these like rain events and then it affects not only the reefs themselves but near shore fisheries one of my guys uh one of the guys on our teams from molokai Kaya, he was just home incredible spear fisherman he's like oh, i was sitting down at 60 feet looking for these things and he was talking about moo which is like one of his favorite fish to to hunt down there and with moo, you have to kind of like move the coral around because they dig through the coral for food. And he was telling me he couldn't he couldn't bait them in because there was a silt layer on top of the coral. And he couldn't actually like grab the coral to make it look like he was a moo. There was just like there was just mud at sixty at sixty feet down in the ocean. And so it really does impact everything from like Mauka to Makai, from mountain to ocean. And the idea is, how do you find balance? How do you find a place where, they, absolutely, water is always going to be more important than any food source. Like, they don't belong in our, in our watersheds, and they belong within our food systems at a place that, like, there's balance, and, and they're not impacting communities and roadways and ecosystems. So, yeah, it is the... The alternative of like not balancing populations, which is what Lanai and Molokai look like right now, is is bad. I mean, great example, Lanai. Um, Mary Ellison owns the whole place. That's a whole different story. But Lanai Hale, which is their little watershed, there's all these amazing stories. My wife translates Hawaiian newspapers. There's these amazing stories of all of these perennial streams that would run all the time that all of the locals would like utilize for opai and like all these different things like literally every stream bread is dry and larry ellison is like reverting to desalination to try and like figure out how to put water on this island like it can it it changes entire landscapes when not managed properly um and lana is a bigger story there was other animals involved sheep and these different things but um again uh, high unbalanced populations like highly unbalanced populations are extremely detrimental and ultimately like doesn't matter how incredible they are as a food resource you've got to figure out how to balance it right yeah absolutely i mean all, all things in right relation for sure so yeah. so 
it, I'm sure, you know, with what you're learning in college and your previous experience in life growing up, it became the thing to do. See a need, fill a need. Like, here's, here's the fucking opportunity to make shit right. Talk about the process of creating Maui Nui and, and what steps needed to be taken. I'm sure there was a lot of fucking hoops you had to jump through with the government getting this cleared to be able to sell and stuff like that and make it work. Um, yeah. And maybe you had a lot of help, too, from people that were like, yeah, please help us, you know? Yeah, it was uh, – I mean, that was – it's been that big island. So what ended up happening is that big island project ended. We successfully found all of those deer. One of the few like invasive species project that was a success. As far as we know, there's still no deer on the big island. You know, that was almost like 10 years ago. Um, and what ended up happening is the ranchers on Maui were like, wait a second. If you guys can do that, we want like, get over here. Like we want you to just kill these things. And they were at that point calling them spotted rats. And because that was their relationship with them, like the ranchers relationship with them was like, they eat all our grass, they break all our fences. Like that was their relative relationship with them. And obviously that didn't sit well with me, like coming from the place where like they started as a food resource and and that's the way we thought of them as. So that was the very first call to the kind of USDA, FDA, you know, 10 years ago now to be like, wait a second, there's got to be a way to do this. And they had some rules in place. Actually, a guy named Sumner Erdman on um, on Maui brought in elk in the – I don't know how he did it. He got elk in the 70s and 80s and created like some framework. But they're not wild. They're, they're all like within fences. Um, but there had to be some framework for like harvesting techniques that aren't in a perfect corral. But anyway, long story short, it took five years – to basically convince the USDA to let us incorporate forward-looking infrared, this technology we had, so that they could, so we could meet all of the standards of a typical slaughter facility. So when you go into a slaughter facility, I mean, very few people listening to this probably have, actually you probably have, knowing you. Um, But when you go into a typical slaughter facility, there are a whole bunch of animals in really tight pens that go into chutes that go into clamps, like they're crazy stressed through this process. Head gets clamped, they get shot in the head. And no country all, for old men. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's called like that process is called like anti-mortem inspection. And we basically had to follow all of those rules. And those rules are they have to be able to view the animal prior to harvesting to make sure it's like healthy, i.e., no broken leg or whatever's going on. And then they have to be able to watch that animal. The language is rendered immediately unconscious, but they have to be able to watch that animal get shot in the head. And there's no room for error. Like every single one has to be done essentially perfectly. So we had to figure out how to like do all of these things that happen in highly constrained areas so they could make it happen in the field when we never bait, we never pen, we never corral, like we never do any of those things. And so it was showing them that forward-looking infrared at night would allow them to be like, hey, that animal is healthy. And then the technology we have, like I can tell you the difference between a goat and a deer at six miles. So at 100 yards, they can see every hair on that body, abscess, pregnant, like they know everything about that animal. And then forward-looking infrared takes – Essentially, it takes heat and turns it into like an optical image. And so what ends up happening is they can actually see our bullet. It ends up being a tracer because 
the friction the bullet creates through the air creates like a little heat signature. So they actually can see the bullet move all the way to the animal's head and see the animal be rendered immediately unconscious. So, but you can imagine how the first call to like the USDA went. They're like, what do you want to do? Who are you? Like, no, no, no. These things need to be in a building. Like, um, so it just took a long time. We finally got a guy out to like view the process with like all of that equipment. And he was like, wait a second. I actually can't say no. Like I can see it all. I can just like, yeah, you guys can do it. And then it was like, I remember like that morning going back, uh, I was on Maui and my, we live on the big island. And I called my wife. I was like, okay, they said yes. And we're like huge celebrations. She's like, but what? I was like, but to meet all the other rules, we have to have a mobile slaughter facility and it has to be specially designed. She's like, okay, well, how are you going to do that? I was like, how do you feel about remortgaging the house? <laughs> and <laughs> she wasn't super pumped, but basically we had to design this specialized mobile slaughter facility that could get with us in proximity to the field because some of the other rules are from the moment rendered, from the moment harvest, it has to be transported, skin, guts off, cleaned without a hair on it in essentially like an hour. So Damn. That's hard enough to do like when that animal is like in a pen. Imagine doing that when you're a mile away from your mobile slaughter facility. So we had to figure out how to break down proximities and um, how to do all of that fast enough. So we had to do two things. One, we had to learn to move really quickly at night and what that looks like. Um, and two, we had to figure out a way within our slaughter facilities. We basically can do from the time a deer gets back and all we've done is bled that animal from the time a deer gets back and you've done deer. So you know what this looks like. We can do a deer in two minutes and 47 seconds. <laughs> You'll got it down to a science. You're like, <laughs> Took the best from from Ray Kroc and applied it to the Axis. Oh my There's all these crazy pulleys in winter. Like, so we had to design very specialized systems so that we could figure out how to do it at scale. And the and I think the reason being is like our goal from day one always was to help balance populations. If the goal was let's just make a little bit of money harvesting deer, we'd have stopped years and years and years ago. The goal was how do we design our systems to scale so we can do 15 to 20,000 deer a year, essentially, right? Um, so that's been like seven, eight years in the making to constantly like iterate and design systems to move fast enough, meet all the requirements of the USDA, and be able to do that in all these different locations. So it, um, God, I could talk about this for hours, but it's been, it's been, seven years of constantly innovating small things to get better fast enough to make it all happen. Yeah. Fuck. Yeah. Well, that's well worth it. You know, it, it's so impressive to me because when you, when you get into hunting, you know, people talk about, um, you know, only taking the shot if it's there and, and making sure that you do it, you have a humane kill and, and, oftentimes you're going to run into it. My hands raised where take a shot that you think you have and it doesn't quite land right. And I remember I was on big Island on that trip before we went out for access. And, um, 
I had just got my first pig at like 23 yards. It was real easy, dead on, you know, one shot, perfect. And, uh, you know, went up, prayed for the animal, thanked it. And then I, uh, I forget who I was paired with, but they're like, hey, you got plenty left in the tank. The sun's not down yet. I was like, oh, you're right. All right, cool. And so we started looking and I saw too, and I told this story before, I won't get into the details of how hard it was on me, but there was, um, I had them at 43 yards and they were just walking, you know, so it was a slightly moving target. And then she picked up to a slight jog. I led her by a couple of yards, what I thought would have been perfect. And it hit her right in the gut. And she, I mean, have you ever hit her, heard a pig squeal? Like I sprinted to her to finish the job with a knife and like, it's something that'll never come out of my mind. Right. Um, then getting into regenerative agriculture and things like that, something that we often think about. And one of the biggest problems is that if you want USDA, you have to go through something where you're transporting an animal that's going to fuck it up. They don't know. These guys don't go on car rides. It's not like your pet dog. Every animal we brought to the land, it took them at least a week, a week. If they were fast, they could integrate in a week to the land and not be freaked out and skittish about it. Some of them took two or three weeks to finally settle down and feel like they were home and not get weird. So you're going to take something and drive it somewhere that immediately puts it on tilt. It's kept penned up. It's no longer with its family members. It's got all these different smells because everyone's standing in their own shit and, and urine. And then this clamp grabs them and squeezes them from all sides on the fucking rib cage. And then the thing comes from behind them and, and, and oh, no country for old men's them in the back of the brain. That's not how I would want to go. That's not humane. That's not like the thing. It's the thing we say yes to, but most people have no fucking idea that that's the process of yeah. which all of our meat that's in the grocery store has to go through all of it. Doesn't matter if it's regenerative, doesn't matter if it's bison or cow or kangaroo, that's how it died. And it's mind blowing to to think like here we are in 2023 and this is the best. That's not the best. Right? And so I think about this when when you told me your process, I was blown away because even if I take the best shot, you know, like the best shot is animals hanging out, it just got laid, let's say, and it's and it's eaten you know, it's eating some grass and the last thing it remembers is hanging with his friends and family with a, with a wad of grass in its mouth, you know, in the euphoria of sex. And, and then it just falls over dead, right? That's a perfect shot, right? Like that'd be great, but you can't always get that. Even if you're spot on, it's going to take time. There's different things. The fact that you guys get to hunt at night, you get, you know, they're all bedded down. There's no fear. There's no transport. There's no weird smells. They're in their environment from start to finish. You know, like Whole Foods has that rating system of like one through five. You never see anything rated five where it was killed on the same land it was raised. You yeah. can't sell it in the fucking store. It doesn't exist. So why even make the rating system go to five? It doesn't, you can't buy it. But now you can, right? I mean, what you guys are doing allows that. And it is the most humane way by far to get the very best meat on the planet. Yeah. I think, and I think ultimately what's going to help change that system is so I got to show you this stuff. We did um, probably the most advanced food testing on the planet. It's called metabolomic testing. We did it with Utah State University. Um, and this is going to become this technology and essentially like nutrient density labeling. Five years, it's coming. And the craziest part was they were able to measure oxidative stress. So they're able to now tell you when an animal dies from excessive stress, how bad it is for you. And so when we got those study results back, it was us. They tossed us in at the end of the study with like 200 beef samples from across like the continental U.S. and Canada from like 
regenerative to lot fed to all of it, which is crazy. And like our nutrient density numbers, like were obscene, like 64 times the omega threes, like crazy, like so much better for you. But being at the end of it, seeing like their ability to measure oxidative stress and like it like is like the detriment it has to like your like to nutrition that shit starts showing up on a label guess what's gonna happen like you start being able to go into a store and see two things of beef and understand collectively from like a, a nutrient density score like which one is better for you that um and you do regenerative ag so this is such a fun conversation what it does is it like starts to unbundle this like commodity food system, which is a race to the bottom for the cheapest thing with like totally like excess calories without any micronutrients. What ends up happening is producers that especially regenerative ag, which is, I just think of it as like layered conservation practices. When they're able to start doing that, they have the ability to measure their quality of food versus another one, like literally apples to apples. And it will start to change the food system, i.e. the better you take care of a place, the better you take care of an animal, you will be able to demand a better price for it. And that's that like that will happen with nutrient density labeling. So really cool. We might, we might to get, we may get to be at the forefront of that in starting to stick some of those numbers on those labels. Um, but that's the only way that changes. Like other than that, if the, the vast majority of consumers aren't going to take the time me and you are going to, to even look into that stuff and then make a relative choice because of that. But the minute they start showing up on a label, like there's this many good things for you per calorie. And all oh, did you know, like, there was this much stress involved. You imagine that people are going to like, a people are going to freak out. So who knows if it ever makes it, but B um, (laughs) people will start making better choices and the technology to complete those types of analysis is is like rat. Like the, the technological cost of it is like decreasing monthly. It's pretty crazy. So I'm super excited to see, what is now like just a conversation me and you can have about like, we know it's not good for us. There's going to be data that shows us in the near future that it isn't. So it's pretty awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, I think before you'd have, you know, there's, there's, there's people who's, who, you know, there's a full spectrum of hunters out there, right? You've got your, you know, fucking kill them, put them on the wall. Don't even eat the meat kind of guy. And then you've got, at least I eat the meat, but I still want his head on the wall. And then you got, you know, somewhere you know, all the way to like, you know, spiritual, I named my animal before I killed it. I wrote it a letter and did a ceremony and all this other shit. And I've done everything in between. It's a fun spectrum to be a part of. Um, but one of the things most, most hunters will always agree with is like you kill an animal, the more, the more stressed it is, the more that will affect the meat. And yeah. if you know anything about the body, you're going you're gonna to take that on, right? I'm, I'm consuming more cortisol, more, more uh, adrenaline, and more of, these, more of these neurochemicals that are layered. It was through every system in the, in the animal's body. It's still going to be there when I'm eating it six months from now, a year from now. It doesn't matter if I froze it and thought it, however well that was packaged, right? And um, I think a lot of people don't – they never consider that. You know, It's just like, oh, that's woo-woo or, yeah, no, that's not how it works. You know, and it's like – but but – there is, there is clear evidence. I'm trying to think of the guy's name 
who, who really pioneered a lot of that research at Utah State. He's retired now. He's in his 80s. Dr. Fred something. Um, I know he's on Paul Check's podcast. Yeah, yeah, he's got a he's got a written a few books, but um, just a brilliant dude. His podcast, I'll find it and link the podcast he did with with uh, Paul Check on Living 4D. It's one of my favorites. They have an amazing. Yeah. He does an amazing animal prayer in that. And I'll send you I'll send you the link to that study. Like we made it, we threw it on our website. Like you can go look at all of it, which is really cool. Um, Doctor Van Bleet runs the lab over there now, and yeah, just awesome, awesome information. And even apart from like how much more nutrient-dense axis deer are as a function of both like they're in the way they graze, but also that study directly measured phytonutrients so like and phytochemicals, like i.e. the amount of good things in the plant, how much of it ends up in the meat. So like how many heads of broccoli do you get with this meat that you're eating from those phytochemicals? And so super cool information, but what it showed, which I think is probably the coolest part, is nutrient density is nutrition of place. So what it showed us was that the unique soil sets that are on Haleakala's slope, like these andesols and eustans, which exist like less than 0.5% of the world, that directly translates into the nutrient density of what is then food, like when that animal turns into food. And that type of information, again, thinking about like unbundling this shit commodity food system, that type of information, i.e. like the health of a place translates to the health of the animal, which translates to the health of your food. That's direct data that says like, no, 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 Because we had to send like 72 soil samples and forage samples to go along with it. So they could actually like, pair the micronutrients and chemicals they were seeing in those plants and soils to the deer to the food and i don't know man like i I think that has the the potential to change our food system as a whole and and if anything will really help amplify the need for regenerative ag i.e like if you take care of a place it's going to translate into better food yeah, this is this is great. I actually I haven't talked about this yet. I just it's literally you, know, you wanted. To, I don't know what questions you had about the farm, but I have a story to tell you that's super recent. Like in the last three yeah. days, we found this out. Yeah. Um, so we 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 have we do cows, we do sheep, we've got some exotics. You know, red stag, black buck. There's like ten remaining whitetail. You know, we left the gate open for the whitetail to leave because they're all low fence. We had to put high yeah. fence in for the for the big ones. And I'm like, I don't feel like trapping these guys here. They you know they're so used to just being wherever the fuck they want, but. We had some stay behind, and so they're a part of the crew now. Um, We're, you know, the main regenerative piece is we rotate our cows and our sheep together with some livestock guardians to protect them. And then we have a a nine-acre fenced-in place that where we have our food forest. There's 400 fruit and nut trees. We do sweet potatoes, Japanese yams. We've got 120 chicken, 20 ducks, four geese, (laughs) a couple donkeys, a couple emus, and a couple more livestock guardians, and they're protecting the birds. And so um, we had a – we had a choice to make. This was our first year where we could harvest something that was born on the land and finished. Right. So this is like the first real, like, all right, here's our first test of the meat quality that we have here since we've gotten a hold of this land at the end of 2021 and started regenerative practices. And what's cool is 
we, you know, we had a decision to make. And it's funny because farmers will scoff at this and Pete is going to be mad no matter what fucking decision I made. Um, but we had 16 ram lamb to make a decision with. Do we snip their nuts? Do we wrap rubber bands around their nuts and wait for them to fall off so we can control breeding? Or do we harvest them now as lamb, which was an idea to begin with, and 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 check that out? So I said, yeah, let's do that. And, and our plant manager said, give me three of them to come inside the food forest and I'll see how detrimental they are or if they're beneficial because we have a, a fucking boat ton of Johnson grass in there year round because that's getting overhead sprinklering 24-7, even through the drought, right? Because we got all our trees and our, and our stuff in ground. And this Johnson grass will grow eight feet tall. Like there's nothing that can stop it. We're out there with sickles. We got weed whackers, you know, it's teams of 20 guys. It's an uphill battle. And we, you know, chop and drop's fine because it feeds it back into the ground, but it's not as good as an animal eating it and shitting it out. And so sure enough, we bring these three in and um, they're doing great. And they're eating a lot of the Johnson grass. And then we figure, all right, we can bring the whole herd through. So we brought the flock through just the other day for the first time. It looks pristine. It's like the best decision ever. They didn't hurt a damn thing. So now we know we can do that. But going back to this first 13, we harvest them. Absolutely incredible meat. There's yellow fat that's loaded with, with vitamin A and all this good stuff. The, the meat's a dark red. It's beautiful. And just in the last three days, we, we had to section these three rams away from them while they're in the same place. And one kept getting through the electric fence. He wasn't having it. He wanted to get in there and have his, you know, he wanted to get his fill of the ladies. So we, we had this mobile, this mobile fence, you know, this mobile pen or this iron fence, you know, it's, it's heavy duty. And we put him in there and then the guys would move it, you know, every day to a fresh piece of grass. That way he wasn't, you know, feedlot style standing in his own feces and he'd have some fresh food to eat. When they went to move it, he freaked out and sprinted straight out one of the corner posts inside this thing. And it just went bong and it knocked him out like full on fucking knocked out. And unfortunately for him, he, he, he never really recovered from that. When he woke up, he could lift his head, he could move his feet, but he couldn't stand. And so immediately we're faced with the decision. Like if he, you know, this was early in the day. I'm like, if he doesn't recover by morning, we should call him. Cause the meat's perfect. No reason not to. And, uh, so that ended up having to happen. We did it. And the first thing we noticed, because now the only difference between these guys is that the original 13 Ram Lamb, they were, they were going around the land and they had to deal with the seasons. You know, summertime is like winter in most places in Texas because we're, we're year two of one of the worst droughts we've had in a very, in a hundred years, right? So it was, it was slim pickings and we're giving them hay and supplements and alfalfa and that kind of shit. And that's not the same as fresh grass. This guy that we just harvested was like, Two like twice as dark, so we know right there he's getting more micronutrients from the from the iron and converting that into heme iron. We know at least that the the, the fat was way more way more colorful. Like there are so many things that we saw just from observational standpoint. So I, I find that to be really cool because number one he looks different, number two he tastes different. But now we know that we can rotate these guys in because over the course of a year they're going to travel through there at least three or four times. Now we get to bring the whole flock in. And that's going to help them out with their nutrient density, especially in the summer months. You know, they're going to get some really fresh grass that's still growing in the ground and doing really well. And, and the impact it had on one animal was unfucking deniable. So that, that's really cool uh, that we get to see that, you know, and you only see that firsthand, but it's cool. Like we ran an experiment without even realizing we were running an experiment. That's so cool, man. What, what, like, I, I had like checked it out and I was like, wow, he's doing something super cool here. I did not know it was at that scale. That's kind of crazy, my friend. Um, what would be like, 
if you think back it, over the last, like, God, you've been doing it for a while now. Give me two of the biggest surprises, like could be positive or negative, but like, like in trying to make all of it work together, what have been two of the biggest surprises of like trying to execute regenerative ag properly? Cause it's like, it is extremely complicated. There's lots of people that want to do it at different scales, but it, it's, it's difficult to execute on a daily basis. Right. Um, and you talked about yeah. earlier when we were first chatting, like great people go a long way, but like two big surprises, like you're like, Oh, I had no idea this was going to be this. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, I had, a. Uh... To your point, I had Joel Salatin on from Polyface Farms. He was on the podcast and he said, you know, in the last, since 2020, one and a half million people have become homesteaders, you know, born and raised city slickers like myself, moved out to the country and became homesteaders with a minimum of five acres to work with. And a lot of them got animals, a lot of them put plants in the grounds. And then, and then, you know, a year later, they're like, what the fuck now? What do I do? You know, so I always give credit for the fact that we, we stand on the shoulders, you know, on the backs and shoulders of giants. Right. So like I've, I've been very well connected wherever I'm not connected to Aubrey seems to be connected to. So we have decent reach in getting to meet people. And because I've been buying and a consumer of regenerative agriculture for so long, thanks to the same thing you learned in, in volleyball, I learned in fighting, right? Like what I put in my body actually changes how I think, how I feel, how I operate, my athleticism, my recovery, all that shit. And especially since having kids, like I've never paid more attention to what's going in my body than, than, you know, when I started having kids and thinking about what's going into theirs. So we've been super fortunate in that we've been connected with really amazing people. Um, a lot of people hear about Jim Gale, Food Forest Abundance. His, you know, the brains of his operation is a guy named Chad Johnson, who traveled the globe with Seth Holzer. Seth Holzer would be on the Mount Rushmore of regenerative agriculture. He's got some fantastic books. And Chad is somebody that we, you know, got to meet and fall in love with and had the, we were fortunate enough to hire him and have him design with permaculture design through Seth Holzer's work, our food forest. So that was a big deal. And then we met Daniel Griffith, um, a lady that was working with us about a year ago was awesome. She's like, Hey, I've heard so much about this good stuff. And then I reached out to Taylor, Taylor and and Robbie are homies from force of nature. And they got Rome ranch about uh, 90 minutes West of here. So we've done some bison harvest there. My son sat on my lap when he was four years old and saw his first animal go down at 20 yards. You know, he went and prayed on our warm body, sprinkled tobacco on the land. Like he started to build that connection. He hasn't hunted with me yet, but um, I give a lot of credit to those guys. They've introduced us to many great people. And, um, you know, we've learned so much from Daniel too on the regenerative side. He's an Allen Savory hub and has really taken what Savory's work is and added, you know, his own twist to it. And so we've been able to gain a lot there. And we've also had really hard shit we've had to learn from. I think one of the most shocking things is, you know, like my dad said it best. He's like, you were studying 101 and then you got the farm and you found yourself where you were in 401. Right? <laughs> like you're, you're, in, you're in your PhD level shit, right? Like you're just like, hey, I just signed up for graduate school. Why am I in the fucking master's class right now, right? Um, we, had, we had gotten all of our sheep and – we were probably the only people in Texas that brought in a food source without protection. I thought that because we had an eight foot game fence, we were fine. And, you know, as I know now, I mean, we could count 27 places along the perimeter where coyotes had gotten in. And so we lost six coyote or we lost six sheep in one night. And, um, I freaked the fuck out. I was like, at this rate, we won't have a flock to protect by the time we're able to secure dogs and train them and do all the things necessary. So we started camping out in, in groups of two and like, it's not, I, I want to, I'm only going to kill something 
that I want to eat. I don't want to eat a coyote, but for, yeah. for this, you know, it's like, this is, they're directly affecting my food source and my lifeline and the protection and, and future of this farm. And for my family, like something has to be done. And, um, we camped out. I got fucking, I got like one of the nicest thermals. I got night vision goggles. I, I went all out and, you know, it was a <laughs> lot of fucking money and, you know, we're up all night. I'm, I gotta, you know, get, I'm leaving the farm first thing in the morning. I come back home. I'm dead tired. Maybe slept for an hour. I'm, I'm out there spotting stock. I'm looking through lenses and everything. And they're so intelligent. You know, they would always hang in the tree line just past, you know, the trees have their own infrared, right? So just where we couldn't see them and they do their roll call. There'd be, there'd be, 12 to 20 of them on our land at a time, just hooting and hollering and yipping. And um, we started to read about them. We found out, you know, if, if, there, if there was a, a pack of 20 and you killed 18 of them and there was one male and one female, she would go into estrus the next day. That's how smart this, this, this animal is, right? It, it's almost extinction proof. And they always come back with more. She could have a litter of 20 right then. You know, once she gets pregnant, she, she would fill that, that gap and then some. And um, so killing them wasn't the answer. And livestock guardians became the answer. It became something where, all right, you know, we got to get something. So we got two great Pyrenees dogs and we were pissing all over the place and taking dogs on perimeter laps. So they'd piss all over the place. And, you know, what I was told was that coyotes can't tell if, a, if it's a puppy or a full grown, right? So it's just, they just smell the urine. They know it's a dog, that kind of thing. And so we made the mistake of not, not camping out there one more night thinking the two dogs had it. The two dogs didn't have it. They, they one was too young, and it, and it looks like um, the other one was staying to protect. While coyotes came and killed seven more fucking sheep, so now we're down to thirteen. We've had six weeks in the field, have not been able to fucking kill a single a single coyote. And I was like, that's it. So I drove up north three hours, and I came back with five more livestock guardians to make it seven. And since then, since then, we haven't lost a damn thing. It's, it's a it's a hell of a food bill, but. Uh, we don't we we don't lose sheep anymore to coyotes. So we we've, we've got a we've got an army, a small army, and um they're they're absolutely fantastic. And I love those dogs. And what's great about the livestock dogs is you know, it's kind of like a service animal. You know, it's not your pet, doesn't hang out in your house, but they're the sweetest dogs. They're the absolute sweetest dogs. And some of them have been really skittish and and kind of afraid of us almost because of their lack of human affection and interaction and you know, over the, the year that we've been with them, you know, they'll, they'll come right up to us now and they're, they're just the sweetest, you know, one of our, one of our dogs is an Anatolian shepherd mix and he, he's within five feet of every delivery. He's a fucking midwife, every delivery cow what? or sheep. And then when the mom gets mad, like you're too close, she'll get up and, and stomp her hooves or something like that. He, without taking his eyes off mom, he'll back up a yard. Like, is this okay? No. Okay. And he'll back up another yard. Then he'll sit back down and just wait like he's he's on board right there every single one of them he didn't miss a single delivery and i was like we got some special dogs man it's pretty cool so I, that that's been a hell of a learning curve uh but something beautiful and then you know with i guess on the other side of that you know on the plants like summers are so brutal and we had you know line irrigation set up we did we punched holes we did the whole thing with with a, uh, some really uh, some of chad's best guys and one of our lines went dead and we couldn't tell until it was too late. We lost 50 trees. We lost a whole zone in our sprinkler system because it was down for like a week in the summer and just fucking all of them died. And thankfully they're still under warranty. We got to trade them back, but like that was a quarter of what we planted gone in two weeks. I was like, dude, that is a huge loss. And thankfully, you know, we didn't have to take that one on the chin, but, um, 
you know, observation is everything. It's not something, yeah. this, it's not a, in 15 or 20 years with permaculture design, it is something that we're like, if no humans touched it for 50 years, we'd come back to it and it actually would be better than how we left yeah. it. It's just going to become self-operating, but it's like, it's a lot like having kids. Like they need you so much immediately to make sure they're alive. And then they need you a little bit less, but they still need you every day. And then somewhere around when they're 15 years old, they're like, Hey, I got it, dad, back off. You know, but up until that point, like it's full on and, and, um, like having kids, it's something that's so beautiful. People talk about, you know, like reconnecting to nature and doing all these different things. Like when you put something in the ground and you watch it grow and you tend it and you see these animals, you know, from start to finish. Um, and I know the type of quality of life that these animals have, like it changes the relationship with food. It changes my relationship with nature. And I already had like a pretty deep bond through plant medicine work and hunting and things like that, you know, like a really deep connection. And this is just allowed, you know, layers and layers further into that aspect. So I'm, I've, I've been truly blessed to be able to do it. And, um, and at the same time, there's, I have no, no, you know, I, I make no mistake about thinking like the work is done. Like there's always something I'm going to learn. And, and uh, 10 years from now, I'll have another thing like the sheep where I'm like, holy shit, I didn't see that coming. You know? So it's, it's one of those things. Like it's just, it's, it's unpredictable and it's awesome. And it keeps me on the edge of my seat. That's so cool, man. Um, yeah. You're a brave. That is a brave endeavor. We have like a small subset of that here. And I think probably what I enjoy most is, the same way me and you realize how powerful observation is. So how powerful it is to be able to like watch it all and then kind of understand the small connections that make things work. Like, oh, these plants and these animals or these plants and these plants are like this, this and not that. It's been so fun to watch our kids do that. It's been so fun for them to like flex that part of their brain that you think a thousand years ago would have been the most important thing. Like, can you observe the environment around you and then make connections to ultimately like make everything around you better. Right. And watching our kids understand like, Oh, this animal's got a little bit different personality than that animal. And like, why is this tree growing better than this tree? And like, um, what my son the other day was like, Hey dad, what is this new little like weed that's growing by our tree? Like our tree looks like a little bit greener. Um, that's a, that's a fucking superpower. Because that same level of observation or like pattern recognition, think about like some of the best people you know in business. That's pattern recognition. And that like, that ability to do so is, it appears to be like best honed in nature. Um, and so we get to do that all the time, like with our work, like constantly watching like, oh, what are the deer doing? And we collect like an obscene amount of data, like try and like piece it all together and it's probably why I love our work so much is it's just this constant crazy puzzle. Cause like solving for the variability of them being wild is like literally constant, right? Um, no different than your crazy backyard that you're dealing with. Um, and, but yeah, I think what I enjoy most is watching, watching our, my kids develop that superpower because it really like, it's going to be because all of this crap, it doesn't do any of it. Like, that's, that's, there's no pattern recognition in that. Somebody's feeding you an algorithm that you're like literally being spoon fed exactly what they want. There's, there's no piecing it together. Um, so just congrats, man. I think like that is a monumental undertaking. So stoked that you have such amazing like connections to help you learn faster, which is, which is great. 
Um, but man, that is, that's badass, brother. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it's been great, brother. Well, we're, we're past the hour here, but I didn't want to talk, you know, I mean, um, people can, let's, let's wrap it on Maui New. Where can people get a hold of your stuff? Uh, loved getting to hear the full story behind it, but where can people find this? And then, uh, I do want to talk Maui in general. Like I can't have a Hawaiian on the podcast or somebody that's there right now, you know, like that has been through this firsthand. There's all sorts of talk on that. So I just love to get, you know, some, some data points from somebody that's been close to it because, um, I haven't talked about it, you know, uh, on the podcast because I haven't had any experts here, anybody that's even remotely, you know, like in the area. I've had, I've had friends that I've talked to, you know, my good buddy Shervina wearing a Symbiotica shirt. He's, um, they have land in Kauai and uh, fantastic people, you know, a lot of connections there. And, um, you know, I, it, it's, it's heartbreaking to hear about it, you know, for so many reasons. But talk a bit about Maui Nui and then let's, let's dive into that as before we wrap. Yeah, Maui Nui is simple. It, everything's basically via the website, which is awesome. We can get it now at this point, like anywhere in the continent. I say, actually, I think our biggest, second biggest customer base is in Texas, which is pretty badass. I get to, um, yeah. So appreciate all of that. People know access. They know access to you here. They do, man. Um, the yeah, where to start on Maui? We were God. It was it was chaotic for a really long time and, and still very much is. There's like, you know, there's at least 10,000 plus people that are essentially still displaced, i.e. they aren't where they're supposed to be. And they're either in an Airbnb or a hotel or like these crappy camps. Like it, the situation was already bad before as a function of like housing, but like figuring out where these people go and how they still maintain like a plate, like a sense of place. Um, unfortunately people are leaving every week. Like there's a better opportunity on another Island or in Vegas or something. Right. Um, so it's still, that's, I mean, that's the nature of like the news cycle these days is like everybody got, it was a big deal for seven to 10 days. And then all of a sudden it was something else. Right. So, um, Luckily, the community, if there's any positive notes, um, community has kind of gone through their mourning period. You imagine how, like, in these disasters, you don't know what's going on for so long. And, and in a nature of a fire like that, like, you can't find people. Like, they're gone, right? They've been burned. Um, and so having all of that done and a lot of that like coming to closer has really allowed the community to finally like move into that morning phase, which was really important because especially Hawaiians, like nothing happens till you mourn. Like, don't talk to me about anything else. Don't talk to me about like rebuilding. Like we need to like mourn and celebrate and be done. And before they can like ever move on to whatever the next conversation is. So luckily some of those conversations are starting to emerge and what's been really cool to see is just a reimagining of these places like Lahaina, the place that burned, used to be a wetland. It, it used to be like, there used to be like inland bays where these boats would come in and vaas and canoes and like, it was a food forest. They had, they had ulu, they had breadfruit on the entire slopes. They used to feed hundreds of thousands of people. And now it's a desert with no water and the... As, as terrible as the incident has been, it's been it's been so cool to see people not reach back to like 
two years ago and what Lahaina used to look like. They're reaching back to like the early 1800s and saying like, wait, wait, when was Lahaina the healthiest? When were our people the healthiest in this place? And so it's been awesome to see some like real amazing community leaders come forward that essentially like were there, but were there quietly before and say like, oh, no, no, no. Like Lahaina is going to be a like a place for generations to come that is healthy. And what is that going to look like? Because literally like the whole thing burned out. Um, and then we are a small story within like some amazing stories of community within Lahaina. But, you know, for our team, we immediately pivot. Like we were literally like, I remember like, getting gear on at 10 o'clock at night, looking across, we're at Lupalakua and Lahaina's across from us, like seeing Lahaina still burning and knowing there was going to be 40, 50,000 people displaced that all needed food. And I think that's one of the interesting and things, one of the things we're proudest about and what we've built is the system we've built can call on food very quickly um, and that resource. So we talk about a, a, a whole Ilona, but like a sign, um, we harvested, it's the first time we've ever done it. We harvested a hundred deer in four hours. And that amount of deer was exactly what was needed to make 45,000 bowls of chili the next day to like get it in there and feed the community, like all the displaced people. Um, and we've just been so fortunate to be able to like continue to share what we've built with the community. So we've done like 40,000 plus pounds of, like donations in the community, we immediately just pivoted to like, we just started buying freezers and we would just take freezers, like stand up freezers or chest freezers. We like just drop them at people's houses and just fill them up with like one pound packs of ground. And so that like anybody that needed it, they didn't have to like go to the food bank or something. They just like go to their neighbor's house and be like, Oh, I'm going to take four for my family. Or like it, it's been, yeah, it, it's been so valuable to our teams to be able to share through this period because it's been rough. And I think having really clear purpose and being truly useful in a time of need like this is all you can really ask for, right? The worst thing is being like sitting on the side and not knowing what to do and or, and or getting in the way. The best thing to be able to do, like it's, we've been very, um, feel very privileged to be useful in this period of time for sure. Um, and it's, it's going to take 10 years. So basically what we're designing right now is like we're taking what we call our Holoai program. Holoai is this Hawaiian term that is like to rush food to where it's needed. Um, so we're designing a Holoai program. Actually, me and you can talk about this after because we have a volunteer program. So now like you can come in, work your ass off for the weekend, help us donate food, share food with the community. And like we, we're doing it kind of outside of the USDA um, so you can actually be involved in the whole process, which is pretty badass. So we're going to be bringing in a bunch of people to help us. That's do that. awesome. Yeah. So we're basically redesigning who we are to make sure we can support long-term food sharing indefinitely, essentially. So, um, it's been tough. Like lots of guys, like lots of folks on the team lost everything. Um, like literally everything. And, but we've been, as a whole, the team has just been so like privileged and honored to be useful and feel, yeah, just feel how lucky we are to be able to do that when most people are just like, how do I help? And they, they don't know how to sometimes. Right. So yeah, yeah. it's home. We're going to take care of it. Um, 
and yeah, it's, it's going to be a long, long time to, and, and the goal is just like, how do you continue to provide support? So we don't lose our community. Our community doesn't like move away. So we're just trying to figure that out right now. And um, going to invite lots of people to come in and help us do that. So yeah, looking for, uh, we'll connect after and we'll figure that out. Awesome, brother. Well, it's been so good having you on the podcast. Uh, we don't have to wait five years to do it again. I hope we run it back oh. much sooner than that. It's great getting to catch up with you, brother. Um, uh, MauiNui.com. We'll link to that in the show notes. Where can people find you on social media to stay connected to you? Uh, I don't do a lot of social, but MauiNuiVenison.com or at MauiNuiVenison is where a lot of our stories roll around. And um, Yeah, they can find a lot of our stories there for sure. Dope, brother. Well, it's been awesome. Thank you so much, bro. We'll take care.